0: Before we get into this week's podcast, I would just like to tell you about this podcast's sponsor, It's Just Soap. Many store bought body washes and soap bars are made with toxic ingredients that are harmful to your skin. Soap should be healthy for your body, leaving you feeling clean, hydrated, and moisturized. It's Just Soap is made with natural ingredients, giving you a luxurious lather for the best shower experience. Every shower should feel this good. So go to it'sjustsoap.com. That's it'sjustsoap. S O P.com. Leave off that A for additives. And use the code Stay Home Husband for 15% off your first purchase. As always, thanks for being here and listening to the podcast. If this is your first time, please press or click that subscribe button on whatever podcatcher you use for your podcast pleasure. It would also be great if you left a rating or review. You can also find me in a few corners of the internet. I'm on Twitter at Boston Homer. I'm on Instagram at Stay Home Husband. I also write a couple times a week at stayhomehusband.com and I would encourage you to sign up for my Friday newsletter where I send all of my stuff And recommendations from my week from reading, from listening, music, podcasts, food I've eaten, booze I've had and liked, um, all in one place. So go and subscribe to that newsletter. And finally, this podcast is just a little bit different. It's just me talking about the Ryder Cup and Christy O'Connor in particular. Um, So I hope you really like this one. It's something different that I thought I would try. Um, Over the next month, there'll be a few other ones as well. So uh, let me know if there's a player that you would like me to highlight, uh, try to find players that maybe not a lot of people know about, and uh, and just doing a little 20-minute pod about that person and about the Ryder Cups that they were involved in. So thanks for listening, and let's get to my podcast about Christy O'Connor Sr. Since 1927, 154 Europeans have competed in the Ryder Cup, first for the Great Britain and Ireland team, and then in 1979, the rest of Europe joined the Ryder Cup fray. Some of those 154 golfers played in one single Ryder Cup match, like John Velde and Jarmo Sandelin, during that fateful Sunday in 1999 at Brookline. Others like Lee Westwood, Colin Montgomery, Seve Ballesteros, and Nick Faldo have played in dozens of matches and are credited with transforming the competition from one marked by American dominance to a European party. On both sides, there are plenty of unsung heroes. In the lead-up to this year's Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits, I'll take a look at some of those players that helped keep the Ryder Cup afloat or stole the show for brief moments like a comet streaking through the sky. This opening podcast is going to look at Christy O'Connor, Sr. The Irishman played in 10 straight Ryder Cups from 1955 to 1973. The name Christy O'Connor might sound familiar, and a quick search of the internet might lead you to Christy O'Connor, Jr., who was a nephew of Christy O'Connor, Sr. Yes, I said nephew. The junior and senior titles were simply given to both men to distinguish them from each other. On this particular pod, we'll be talking about O'Connor Sr. But Christy O'Connor Jr. etched himself into Ryder Cup lore too with a famous two-iron shot in 1989 at the Belfry to beat Fred Couples and clinch the Ryder Cup for Europe. Sadly, both Christy Sr. and Jr. passed away in 2016 first junior in January, and O'Connor Sr. in May. O'Connor is a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame and enjoyed success in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He was an imposing figure. Gary Player said of O'Connor, The two most natural golfers I ever saw in my life were Sam Snead and Christy O'Connor. Ryder Cup captain and O'Connor's teammate in 1955, John Jacobs, said about O'Connor's swing, He had such authority, yet such fluidity. And I would say with absolute honesty, I would be picking him if I could just watch one swing. So let's spend a little time with Christy O'Connor Sr., one of the most important figures in early Ryder Cup history. In Ireland, Especially out in the windswept, quiet towns and villages, there is an intimacy and closeness. In the 1950s, many parts of Ireland were rather remote. Within those small towns, there is often a term for a popular, well-known character in the area. The term is simply himself or herself. It's usually a term of endearment, like a soccer player or a rock star with one name. Pele, Maradona, Bono, Sting. In O'Connor's case, his popularity as a sportsman in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s earned him the name himself all over Ireland. O'Connor was born in Galway in 1924. The country was newly free of English rule and dealing with the fallout of two wars— one for independence, and then an ensuing civil war, it was not an easy time to grow up in Ireland. O'Connor was raised on a farm across the street from Galway Golf Club, which caught his attention as soon as he set his eyes on it. Like Francis Womet did just 30 years earlier in Brookline, O'Connor snuck onto the course to play and learn the game as a young boy. Then he started caddying, at Galway Golf Club to help support his farming family. His caddying gig turned into an assistant professional job at Galway when he was 23. The club pro-life seemed to be in O'Connor's blood as he spent 50 years as a pro at Royal Dublin. This is something that will likely never be done again by a touring pro of his caliber as the money is just too good out on tour. So with his smooth swing and dogged work ethic, himself parlayed his first job at Galway Golf Club into an assistant job at Toome Golf Club, which is also in Galway. O'Connor's job stretched beyond the simple assistant pro life as he worked on the grounds crew at Toome. This secondary role made it hard for the Irish Professional Golfers Association to recognize him as a full-time professional. O'Connor was 27 when he finally played in the Open Championship with the help of two members who raised the 70-pound entry fee so O'Connor could go play at Royal Portrush. He took advantage of his opportunity and finished in 19th place, launching his professional career. That appearance at the Open was the first of his 26 attempts at the Claret Jug. He never came closer then in 1965 when Peter Thompson edged him by two shots on his way to his fifth and final Open Championship. Incredibly, those 26 Opens were the only majors O'Connor competed in. He rejected 20 invitations to the Masters. For many of us who receive rejection letters from the Masters every July when tickets are released, it seems ridiculous that anyone would turn down 20 offerings to actually play in the Masters. But for O'Connor, the journey was just too expensive, and instead of making excuses, O'Connor bluntly made that opinion public. Considering O'Connor spent most of his life living in a humble home with his wife and maintained a role at Royal Dublin for 50 years as the pro, it's hard to imagine him splurging on anything, including a trip to Augusta. The majority of golf himself played was in England or Ireland. The European Tour didn't exist back in the 50s and 60s. Instead, it was the British Tour, and O'Connor was a big fish in that relatively small pond. O'Connor tallied 22 wins before the European Tour was formed in 1972. His first win in 1955 at the Swallow Penfold Tournament earned him the first ever 1,000-pound check British professional golf. His 1956 and 1959 British Masters victories were probably the highlights of O'Connor's resume, and his stretch of consistency was quite exceptional. He won at least one event in every year during the 1960s. Even without a major title to his name, Christie seemed to be a bit of a big game hunter. In addition to winning the first 1,000-pound check, He also cashed the largest check in professional golf at the time. It was a hefty 25,000 pounds when he won the John Player Classic in 1970. His toured finish in the 1966 Carroll's Invitational earned him a commemorative plaque at Royal Dublin's 16th hole. He played those final three holes with scores of 2-3-3. Eagle, birdie, eagle, to win. He also won the World Cup of Golf with Harry Bradshaw in Mexico in 1958 and the News of the World Match Play Tournament in 1957. Clearly, O'Connor's success and consistency lent itself to return trips to the Ryder Cup. His 10 appearances will never be remembered for any type of success. His team only won one of those competitions— in 1957 and tied another one in 1969. And O'Connor finished his Ryder Cup career with a record of 11 wins, 21 losses, and four ties. When compared to Sir Nick Faldo's record of 23, 19, and four, himself's record certainly seems underwhelming or even downright terrible. But considering how poor the overall record of his teams were during the 10 matches he played in, He manages golf quite well. In 10 Ryder Cups, Great Britain and Ireland earned a total of 97 points, so O'Connor won 11% of his team's total points in those 10 Ryder Cups. Famed announcer Peter Alice paired with O'Connor to create one of the more prolific tandems during those dry Ryder Cup years. The 1965 event at Birkdale saw Alice and O'Connor take down the likes of Billy Casper, Arnold Palmer, and Ken Venturi. With all the Ryder Cup losing O'Connor endured, the single victory in 1957 can be seen as a breath of life into a dying event. After three decades of American dominance, the Ryder Cup was on the chopping block as an event considering the unequal playing field and lack of depth among the Great Britain and Ireland team. The host course for the 1957 event, Lindrick, has its own role to play in the tournament's history. As the Ryder Cup floundered, a gentleman named Sir Stuart Goodwin came to the rescue and offered £10,000 to the PGA if, and only if, the Ryder Cup was held at his beloved Lindrick. Goodwin was a golf philanthropist, running events and donating money to the game. Because of this particular donation, the PGA made a record profit of £11,000 that week. Sir Stuart Goodwin was a champion of golf no matter who was playing. He was the vice president of the Ladies Golf Union and helped bring the Curtis Cup, the women's amateur version of the Sol Hyman Ryder Cup, to Lindrick by giving the Ladies Golf Union 2,000 pounds and promised he would also cover any losses the Ladies Golf Union or Lindrick accrued due to hosting the Curtis Cup. The 1957 Great Britain and Ireland victory had a few interesting little bits of strategy that have carried over into the event 60 years later. When the Americans hosted Ryder Cup stateside, they have control over the conditions of the course. That's the case now, and it was the case then. Host teams set the conditions of the course, so the Americans would flood the greens with water and cut back the rough to benefit their team's playing style. In 1957, Great Britain and Island captain Di Reese set his own rules for the Lindrick Greenkeeper. First, he wrote, the fairways were to be made as narrow as possible, no more than 35 yards across on many of the holes. There was to be a 6 to 10 yards strip of semi rough with grass, which would be long enough to cover the ball and make it difficult to get any backspin on approach shots. The deep rough was not to be touched. Second, around the edge of the greens, there was to be a narrow strip of mown grass but at the back of this mown grass was to be bordered by what the British pros knew as jag grass. This is grass, which is about two inches long so that it covers the ball and penalizes any approach which overshoots the green. Third, no water was to be applied to the greens for three days before the match. So, the 1957 Ryder Cup was an important one. It was the final Ryder Cup that GB and I would ever win, and in the words of Captain DiReese, it would put new life into English golf. While the victory didn't quite do that, it kept the Ryder Cup flame lit just a little bit longer. Clinching the final point of a Ryder Cup is a big deal. Sometimes it comes under the white-hot spotlight of the final match on the final hole and other times, it comes in a blowout. But putting the team over the threshold of required points means something to these players. For some, like Paul McGinley, it's a highlight in a majorless career. For others, like Martin Keimer, who beat Steve Stricker on the 18th hole at Medina in 2012 to clinch a 14-13 win for Europe, it's a chapter in a stretch of golf that included two majors and and a Players' Championship. In 1957, O'Connor became the third and final player to clinch the winning point for the Great Britain and Ireland Ryder Cup team when he routed Dow Finsterwald 7-6. A 7-6 victory in any match is a blowout. But from 1927 to 1959, the Ryder Cup format was a bit different than it is today, making the match a bit less of a blowout. One big difference was the length of each match. They were 36 holes. So a 7-6 and match, much closer, over 36 holes than 18. Another different thing was, there were only 12 matches in the entire event. There were four foursomes matches on day one, which were also known as alternate shot, and eight singles matches on day two. So, during the lunch break of the 36-hole match between O'Connor and Finsterwald, O'Connor was so fed up with his bulky putter, he went into the pro shop and found a new one. It was the perfect honeymoon. O'Connor putted brilliantly with his new toy and ran away with victory and the cup clinching point. In 1979, the Ryder Cup expanded to include any player from Europe. The gb teams from 1927 to 1977 had a record of 3, 18, and 1 in their 22 Ryder Cups. After being a consistent presence in Ryder Cups for two decades, it would be easy to imagine O'Connor becoming a Ryder Cup captain. However, that never happened. While O'Connor's swing might have been smoother than a pint of Guinness, his personality could sometimes be a bit prickly. In a video commemorating his 50 years at Royal Dublin, Peter Alice, his Ryder Cup partner in crime, said in a rather impromptu moment, you're a good man. Tricky at times, but okay. In the Guardian's obituary of O'Connor, which I recommend reading, Peter Mason wrote, quote, He had a reputation as an enthusiastic drinker who was liable to get into scrapes including the occasion when he was punched into the clubhouse rose bushes by his friend and fellow Ryder Cup player, Harry Wheatman, at Stoke Pogues in Buckinghamshire, where both were competing in the 1968 Afka Give Art Tournament. O'Connor played the next day with a black eye hidden behind dark glasses, but typically remained the best of pals with Wheatman, and for the most part, also stayed on good terms with anyone he had ever fallen out with. He maintained that most of the stories relating to his drinking entourage, which sometimes included a coterie of golf-loving Irish priests, either did not happen or were highly exaggerated. End quote. I imagine that between O'Connor's tricky personality and his close proximity to so many Ryder Cup losses, the European squad was eager to transition into a new era. To dig even deeper British man captained the first six Ryder Cup teams. John Jacobs captained the 1979 and 1981 teams. Jacobs competed in just one Ryder Cup as a player in 1955. Then, Tony Jacklin ushered the teams through the 80s in the next four Ryder Cups and transformed the Europeans into the powerhouse team it is today. I highly recommend listening to the podcast Ryder cup run by Shane Ryan which dives into the work Tony Jacklin did during his captaincy. It took until 1997 for anyone not hailing from England or Scotland to captain the European team. That was Sevy's team, and it made sense given that the event was held in Spain. If you're not quite catching my drift, I'm not surprised that a prickly Irishman wasn't asked to captain the team in the 70s or 80s, given the history between Ireland and England and the shifting dynamics of the European Ryder Cup philosophy. O'Connor walked off into the Ryder Cup sunset in 1973, earning a half point against Tom Weisskopf. Ever the competitor, even with the Ryder Cup decided in favor of the Americans, himself grinded out that half point against Weisskopf on the 18th green. At 48 years old, he knew this would be his last hurrah, In an event that he had played in for 20 years. In 2009, O'Connor was the second Irishman inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Richard Hills, the Ryder Cup director, who first told O'Connor of his selection, said in a statement that O'Connor was, quote, built like a bull, but had incredible hands for golf, end quote. In 2016, O'Connor passed away at the age of 91. As I read through articles and watched clips on YouTube, I came across a joke that I think sums up O'Connor's notoriety and talent. Two golfers looked on as another player was trying to hit a one iron through a small gap in the trees. The one golfer turns to his playing partner and asks, Who does he think he is? God? The other responded, No, that is God. He just thinks he's Christy O'Connor. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. I know it was a little bit different from my normal ones, but I hope you enjoyed it. I know I'm looking forward to the Ryder Cup, so please make sure you subscribe to this podcast as I plan on releasing a few more Ryder Cup pods in next month. And obviously, you also want to make sure you stay tuned for all my interviews with people in the world of golf from all over the place with all different stories. Um, so thanks again for listening. Please rate, subscribe this podcast, and we will see you next time.